The Holy Gospel according to Mark. As Jesus taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the banquets. They devour the widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and walked the, and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then Jesus called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, I invite the congregation to be seated. So, as we, uh, as we hear the readings today, I hear three things in this. The first is the story of Zech- Zechariah, who was a Zechariah. Who was in the first lesson? Elijah. Elijah. I had, a, had about ten minutes on the way over here to preach. <laughs> it was Elijah who was, who was at the widow's house. The widow said to him, you know, I'll fix you food, but... It's everything that I have. And then we plan to die, right? And that sometimes, I think, is the attitude that we have in congregations. You know, this attitude that there's only so much to have. There's only so much to go around. How are we going to, not in this congregation, but like in South Carolina, there are some places that think this, right? You know, how are we going to keep the lights on? What are we going to do with ourselves? How are we ever going to make this work? Because we are a people who's accustomed to scarcity, We're people who are accustomed to living on a budget. We're people who are accustomed to worrying about, or at least me, who either my wife or I has been in school the entire time we've been married. You know, we're accustomed to wondering whether we're going to run out a month before we run out of money. You know, this, this idea of not having enough to go around is something that we deal with on a fairly regular basis. And so it makes sense that in congregations where we deal with the budget, we think about the budget a lot like we think about in our households. We think of it in terms of scarcity. We think of it in terms of not having enough. We think of it in terms of how will we ever make this work. The second thing that I hear in this is I hear the, the story of the widow in comparison to the people who put a lot of money in. You know, on the one hand, this is a story that has been used in stewardship sermons for generation after generation after generation. So that the pastor can tell people how wonderful it is that out of the little that we have, you know, we we give what we can. And it is in some ways a real story of stewardship in the sense that it is the case that people who have less money tend to give a larger percentage of their income than than people who have a lot of money. You know, 10% of $30,000 a year is easier to come to than 10% of $300,000 a year. And, and a lot of people who make the larger sums justify the, the idea of, well, we don't tithe because, you know, think of how, how that would affect the church. We don't tithe because, well, we want that boat or, you know, if, depending on what your paycheck really is, we don't want to share that helicopter, right? You know, I don't, I don't have to worry about that. But, but it is easy to make some excuses about why it is 
we, we are less generous than God calls us to be, not just with our resources like money, but also with our time. You know, I have a seven-month-old child at home. It would have been really easy for me to say, you know, I'd really like to come up to Michigan and join you all for a little while. But, you know, my wife would rather me stay home. Well, actually, that's the truth. My wife would rather me be at home right now because whenever I go, to, go out of town, our seven-month-old learns new tricks. So last month when I was in Nebraska with them, my seven-month-old learned how to roll over onto her belly and be upset about it. And my wife woke up about three times a night because that happened. So, so this week, while I was here in Michigan, my seven-month-old decided that she was going to start eating different solids than she often eats and has had tummy aches all night, and so she was up all night. So I, I know when I get home, my wife is going to be ready for me to get home. There is a scarcity of time. And not only is there a scarcity of time in the classic sense that, like, we're all busy, but we have so many different things pulling us in so many different directions and so many different ways our attention is, is demanded than almost any generation who has come before. Because it used to be you leave the office, wherever that office might be, and when you get home, you're home. And no one can mess with you unless they want to knock on your door. Because back in the day, nobody had phones until about a hundred and some years ago, right? And so it took effort to bother people. And then we got phones. And so then we expected everyone to be available by phone because... All of a sudden, phones are everywhere. And then we got email, and we had computers at home. And all of a sudden, you know, well, we can, we can go to the desktop and log on to AOL. It, so AOL, back in the 1990s, <laughs> right? You know, we could, we could log on to AOL and, and check our email and, and maybe do a little bit of work from home. And then all of a sudden, like, I have email on my phone, and people text me, and people call me, and people Facebook message me. And all of a sudden, there really is no boundary between my work life and my family life, my work life and my home life, my work life and my hobbies, because everything just gets meshed all together and everyone wants everything all the time. And God help you if you don't answer the email within 24 hours because they wonder why you don't like them and why you're mad at them, right? <laughs> and even, even working in the Senate office where things are important but not quite as urgent. You know, there still is that expectation that I'll get back to people in a reasonable amount of time. It's not an unreasonable expectation, but we've, we've come to have a more unrealistic expectation of what people are capable of because we are not made to work all the time. We are made to be people who have time off. Remember, we, ha- we hear Jesus saying things like Sabbath was created for humanity. Humanity was not created for the Sabbath, Right. We, we hear Jesus remind people about how it is they should spend their time by the way he lives his life. You know, we see in Jesus' rhythm of life how he spends time by himself in prayer with the Father in the beginning of Mark. You know, he spends those 40 days in the wilderness being tempted. And then after he spends those, that time in the wilderness doing the things that he needed to do to gain strength for the ministry he was about to engage in, it's only then that he goes out and says, time's up, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news, and begins his public ministry. And then we see Jesus in public, and then after Jesus does his public ministry, he retires to places like the home of Peter's mother-in-law, where he and his disciples spend time together. And then often in the Bible, we see Jesus early in the morning going off to a private place. We see in the ministry of Jesus this rhythm of life, that is different than the rhythm of life a lot of us practice, where when I get up in fi- at 5 o'clock in the morning, it's because no one's going to bother me, and I can go to the gym, 
and I can send an email and I know that there's two hours right there that I own and no one else in my life owns, right? Because my wife likes to sleep in and thank God, so does my daughter right now. And, you know, but, but there's also other ways that, that we find ourselves not being good stewards of our time. You know, and I, I think the other thing that, that makes us not good stewards is we have this expectation that we have to create everything from scratch. You know, we have this expectation that, and, and in America, even though most of us have never seen a bootstrap, you know, we, we have this expectation that that's what we're going to pull ourselves up by. Each individual person, you know, we're, we're each individually responsible for things. And I, I remember, you know, that attitude is not new. You know, I remember David when, when David wanted to, you know, he noticed that all the people were living in this city now. I live in a house of cedar, but God still lives in a tent. I need to build God a house of cedar because God should have a nice house too, right? Now, what does God say to David? God says to David, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a lineage. I'm going to build you a family. I'm going to build you a promise that's going to last into the ages that David never realized would lead to Jesus, who in the second lesson today, we hear that God didn't create a fine place. God didn't create this majestic place. God created a human place. And that, to me, I think, is one of the most important things that we, we hear as we think about how is it that we use our time? How do we use our energy? How do we use our resources? God came as a human being, as someone who was born into a poor community, as someone who was born into a family that didn't have a whole lot of esteem, as, as someone who was born into a place where he didn't have a whole lot of societal clout or power, as an example to us of what the widow actually demonstrates to us, not that we should all be more diligent in tithing, although that's not bad, but that God gives everything. The widow gave everything that she had. The widow with Elijah gave everything that she had, and she was convinced that she was going to die. You know, God, through the, through the incarnation, through the word made flesh, through, through God pitching God's tent among us and declaring to us that where we are, God is, that God is not far off. God is not somewhere away. God is not somewhere doing God things and leaving us to our own devices. But where we are, God is also, and it matters where we are. It matters when we suffer. It matters when we rejoice. It matters when we struggle. It matters when we have abundance because where God is, things matter. And, you know, like when we see, one of the things I learned about being in, in the bishop's office is the bishop told me almost the first day, whenever we go somewhere, what we're saying to people is where we are matters. And it matters because of our calendar and it's busy and they know we're busy. So when they see the bishop there, they know that it's important the bishop's there. But even more, when you see more than one of the bishop's staff there, people realize that this is something that took some real doing. You know, it matters to, to the bishop and the ministry that we do when more than one of us are in the same place because it demonstrates that we took the effort to make our calendars all work together so we could be in the same place because I tell you the truth, it was easier for me to get a meeting with the bishop when I was a pastor in a congregation than it is when I worked down the hall from him. 
because our calendars keep us moving in so many different directions. And that's all to say that the fact that the word became flesh and dwells among us makes a difference. Because it says to us that the God who is creating the universe, the God who continues to create all that is seen and unseen, the God who continues to speak love into our hearts through the waters of baptism and the meal of communion, it matters to God to be here and we matter. And that's why God is here because that's what love does. Love causes us to be with the people who we love. And we think of the, of the widows in today's stories. And we think of what it was that, that God d- did through Jesus and through the death and resurrection of Jesus as we hear God proclaim to us that love is stronger than all these forces that we have. Love is stronger than the armies of Rome that, tried, that put Jesus to death. Love is stronger than the people in the temple who cried out for Jesus' blood because he dared challenge their traditions. Love is stronger than the forces of heaven and earth that might align against us. Love is stronger than fate. Love is stronger than our shame and our pain that comes from daily life. Love is stronger than the litany of fear that runs through our heads when we feel like we're not worth it. Love is stronger than death because even death cannot remain where God is present because in the presence of God, new life springs up. That is the rule of the universe because where God is, creation happens. And what we learn about God in this text of the widow's might, God gives everything and holds nothing back. And it's not that 10% belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. All that we are, all that we have, all that we do, with every breath we take, with every word we speak, with every action we choose, Everything belongs to God. And the question becomes not what, what should I give back, but how is it that I use the things that God gives me? Because stewardship isn't just something like we do on a Sunday and we write a pledge and we turn it in and we feel good about ourselves. Stewardship is how it is we live into this relationship where God has given us everything already. Before we're able to name, claim, profess, believe, or pro- proclaim anything, God declares to us through the waters of baptism that we've been marked by the cross of Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit forever. And we are a part of a love that changes everything within us and everything around us. So the question becomes, what do we do with these things that God has given us? How is it that we live these lives that God has given us? You know, it's, it's not about how do we keep the lights on. You know, it's, it's not about do we have the resources to do what we're supposed to do. Because what we hear in the scriptures today is the woman who shared what she had and expected to die. The promise of God was that the supplies that she had would not run out until the rains came. And what we see in this scripture lesson is that her supplies did not run out until the rains came. When God calls us to do something, God provides the resources when God calls us to be about something, God provides the things to do. When, when God calls us to love and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the community around us, God gives us not only the words that God gave to Moses, you know, not only the respectability that comes usually with age that he gave to, to people like Samuel, you know, not only the, the courage to, to do the thing that we don't want to do and even complain about like Jonah, 
you know, but, but God gives us everything that we require to do the things that God calls us to do. And the question becomes, what is it that God is calling us to do today? Who is it God is calling us to be? If we believe in the God whose very presence changes the entire world around us, and that God is present here with us today, in the same way that God is present through the splash and the meal, how is it that we go, as we go out into God's world to proclaim God's love, that we represent that change that God is already working? Do we believe in this change? Do, do we believe in this transformation that God is working within us? Do, do we trust in God as the widows trusted in God today? Enough to give everything, knowing that it was never ours to begin with, because everything already belongs to God. Amen.